Some people have claimed that we can't trust the New Testament writings as accurate accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection because some of the writings are anonymous, and most importantly, the New Testament writings are in the Bible, so they can't be unbiased accounts. However, these people might not realize that the New Testament writings have several characteristics showing that they were written by reliable eyewitness authors. In this episode, I am going to discuss the evidence regarding the reliability of the New Testament authors and how the New Testament writings possess several earmarks of historicity indicating that they can be trusted as authentic historical accounts. So I hope you'll stick around to find out the many ways in which we think the New Testament writers were reliable. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, If you have been following this series uh, since I first released it last year, you might have noticed that I went on a little break um, right before Christmas and after. So it's been a a few weeks since there's been a new episode, but um, I am planning on releasing the the remaining episodes starting uh, with today and and one a week until it's finished. It's about 29 episodes in total, so I think there's about, including this one, about 13 more. But yes, today we are talking about the New Testament writers. So last uh, last video, last episode, we talked about the reliability of the New Testament uh, writings. We talked about the New Testament manuscripts and showed how they're the most reliable out of all ancient um, uh, writings. Well, in this, in this episode, we are going to switch to the New Testament authors themselves. Because, um, you know, regardless of whether... So when we look at the manuscripts as manuscripts, we, we think that the evidence points to the fact that we really do have what the authors originally wrote. But having said that, the question is, how do we know that the authors of the New Testament were telling the truth? So that's what we're looking at today. And um, if you're new to this evidence, it's pretty exciting because there's all sorts of interesting ways that uh, the New Testament shows, indicates to us that it's, that it is authentic and that the authors were just reporting what they saw. So we'll be looking at that today. Um, as always, I like to start with a Bible passage that has something to do with what we're covering And today's passage has more to do with what we're going to cover next time. In our next episode, we're covering Jesus' self-understanding and looking at biblical evidence showing that Jesus claimed to be God. And this is one of my favorite passages that does so. Um, I, I usually talk a little bit more about the Bible passage the first time I show it. But today, I think because it's so much more relevant to the next episode, I'm just going to read it, say a couple words about it, and I'll explain it a lot more in the next episode. But yes, today our, our Bible passage comes from John chapter 8, verses 56 through 59. And it says, "Your Now this is Jesus speaking. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, You aren't fifty years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, 
Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. So yeah, like I said, this Bible passage is more relevant to our next episode when we talk about Jesus' self-understanding. But really quickly, if you know what Jesus is referring to, it becomes so clear uh, uh, that he's claiming to be God. So, you know, if you're familiar with the story in Exodus chapter 3 around verse 14, um, God appears to Moses in a burning bush. And Moses asks him uh, what his name is because he needs to go to the Jewish people and, and tell them what God has told him. And, and God replies, uh, when he asks him what his name is, God replies, I am who I am. This is uh, what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And you can see in this passage that Jesus is not only claiming to have existed before Abraham, but he's also claiming to be the I am uh, who is God himself. And you can tell that they, they thought he was uh, claiming this when they picked up stones to throw him. You know, it wasn't against the law to be crazy. Uh, but it was uh, it was blasphemy and punishable by death to claim to be God. So, uh, so we'll be looking at that a little bit more in depth in the next episode. Um, also, as always, we've got uh, questions for reflection for you to be thinking about as we go through the material today. Um, I've got just a couple questions for you. The first one is: Why do you think some scholars are okay with accepting other ancient writings as historical? but they think the Gospels contain legends and myths. Another question to be thinking about is, a 30-year gap between the events and writing about the events sounds like a lot to us today. Is there a consideration regarding first century Jewish culture that helps us understand why this gap isn't alarming? And I'll be trying to give you clues as to what maybe the answers to those are as we go along. But yeah, let's let's get started on, on considering whether or not we think the authors of the New Testament are reliable. And remember, in the context of our three-step apologetic method, okay, um, you know, we if you remember, the first step is to show that truth is objective. The next step is to try to argue and show that God exists. The third step is to show that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Now, the, the way we do this is, is mainly, and I mean partially, but mainly uh, pointing to um, the accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection from the Bible, right? But at this point, we're not really considering the Bible as the Bible, okay? We're, uh, if you are a Christian and you're trying to talk to a non-believer, someone who's interested in this, you, you don't... Uh, what you want to emphasize is that, well, you know, let, let's, yes, uh, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and, and other writings about Jesus are in the Bible, but there wasn't a Christian Bible existing in in the first century, right? Um, the, the church over the years, it, they had these writings from the apostles and the associates of the apostles like Luke and Mark. And they, they had those from the beginning, so, and they all got together eventually at a council and, and, and determined that, hey, these are the authentic writings that we've had from the, the beginning, right? So um, what, we want, what we're doing at this stage is that we're trying to just say, well, yes, these Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and others are in the Bible, but we're, we're going to forget about all that, and we're just going to look at them as ancient manuscripts, and we're just reviewing them 
to see if the, if we think they're historical or not. Are they all just made up, um, uh, or are they just reliable eyewitness accounts? Now, when we're doing this, we are going to look at the New Testament writings just like a, histor a historian would look at any other writings from history, okay? Um, and so uh, what I want to present to you today is, is this concept of, of earmarks of historicity. So um, I'm not a historian myself, but um, I get this concept from Michael Lycona and Gary Habermas, uh, both of which are apologists, but they uh, specialize in um, uh, defending Jesus' resurrection. And a lot of their training is in history, in the methods of history, okay? And as you see, my um, reference there, my citation is to a book they wrote called The Case for Jesus of Resurrection, where they talk about this. So if you're interested in that, you'll read even more about it in that book. But they talk about how his, historians, when they are looking at some account, some written account, um, they, when they're trying to determine if they think that the author of that account is reliable, is that person just um, reporting history as it happened, or is that person just making it up? Okay, They look for these, what they call, earmarks of historicity. And as you see here in my definition, it says these are principles historians employ to determine whether a particular account of history is credible. Okay, And what these earmarks are uh, is these uh, five things. That, uh, historians look to see whether they're... It, you know, when you're looking at any given event in history, they look at all the accounts of that event, all the sources that talk about that event, and... and trying to determine if these sources are telling the truth or not they look at all these things they they try they look to see whether there are multiple independent sources they they want to find eyewitness testimony they want to find early testimony they look to see if there's enemy attestation and they look for embarrassing admissions okay i'm going to break down all of these today and show you why the new testament shows uh, uh there are examples of all five of these throughout the new testament but yeah, what historians, when they're trying to see if they are getting the real deal in someone's account, you know, they they want to see more independent sources. They want to see testimony from eyewitnesses. Uh, the shorter the gap between the writing of the account and the events it talks about, the better. Uh, if there's enemy attestation, that's good. That's like a cherry on top. And if there's embarrassing admissions in the accounts, that's even better. So. Like I said, you're going to see in this um, in this episode, in this video, why the New Testament shows characteristics of all of these. Okay, so the first one we talk about is multiple independent sources, and um, uh, I've got this listed as uh, the explanation is when an event or saying is attested by more than one independent source, there's a strong indica indication of historicity. Right, um, the more uh, when historians are looking at ancient works or any other historical account of an event, they want to see it. They want to see that event being attested to by multiple independent sources, and this makes sense, right? Because if it, if you just have one source, then um, maybe that person made it up, maybe he or she didn't, but you can't really tell because you don't have any other sources to uh, to look at how they told the event happened. And to, and to check these to see if they're all telling the same story or not. So it's a lot easier to, to assume that 
to, to conclude that someone just made it up if you only have one source, okay? And uh, what ancient uh, scholars have found, you know, uh, is that most ancient works only have one or two authors, right? And so uh, most of what we know from ancient history actually only comes from one or two independent sources. However, the New Testament has more writers than any other ancient work, okay? It's similar to the, to you know, when we looked at the manuscripts, there's a lot more manuscripts than any other ancient work. Well, also, there's more independent sources than any other ancient work, right? Um, you know, when you're thinking about, well, I'll look and sh I'll show you what these uh, these sources are telling about the the Jesus. Uh, but yeah, now of course in the in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, what people call the Gospels, those first four books of the New Testament, the manuscripts themselves don't say written by Matthew, right, <laughs> or written by Mark. Uh, they're 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 technically anonymous. However, the church, the ancient church from long ago, you can you can go look in the writings of the church fathers. Uh, the ancient church from 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 day one has been saying that you know the book of Matthew was written by Matthew, the book of Mark was written by Mark, book of Luke was written by Luke, and the book of John was written by John. So although they are technically anonymous, um, we believe that they're written by uh, who the church says they were written by. Uh, but also, other writings in the New Testament talk about Jesus' life as well. Anyways, we'll, we'll talk about the eyewitness testimony here in a second. But but right now, regardless of who wrote what, uh, and again, we're not looking at these as uh, we're not looking at these as a collection of of Christian writings, right? We're just saying that these are all independent sources that talk about Jesus' life, and and like I said, most ancient writings. Uh, most ancient accounts only have one or two authors. Uh, here we're talking about uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight authors. Okay, so that's that's obviously a lot better uh, than most ancient works, right? Matthew, Mark. Oh, and for those of you new to Christianity, uh, Matthew is an apostle of Jesus, wrote the first gospel. Mark is an associate of the apostle Peter, so. Even though Mark wasn't an apostle himself, he um, he was he was an associate of Peter. A lot of people think, actually, from what from my studies, a lot of people think that Mark's gospel was actually Mark copying down a speech that Peter gave to some Roman officials. Uh, Luke was uh, similarly similarly Luke was an uh, an associate of the apostle Paul. So uh, even though Luke wasn't an, uh, an apostle himself, he uh, was an associate of Paul. And he wrote down a lot of what Paul said. Then, you know, obviously we've got John's gospel. He was an apostle. We've got writings of Peter, uh, an apostle of Jesus, James, who was Jesus' brother, Jude, who's Jesus' brother. And Paul wrote a ton of the New Testament, and he was an apostle of Jesus. So we've got at least eight independent sources, right? So that's that's something that the New Testament has going for it. It has many different sources. Um and uh, it also has eyewitness testimony. So I was already kind of touching on this earlier, but there's indications that uh, it comes from eyewitness testimony. And and this, you know, besides the ancient church saying that these writings came from eyewitnesses, the writings themselves say that they were eyewitness accounts. Um, and there's a lot more Bible passages than what I'm about to show you, uh, but I... I 
I can show you at least an ex a couple examples. So one example comes from John's Gospel, uh, chapter 19, verse 35. It says, And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. You know, it's just a straightforward account that says that um, the author of that gospel is an eyewitness to the events. Another example coming from John is from 1 John uh, 1, 1, and it says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So John says in other places that he was an eyewitness. Uh, in, in Luke, you, you see that uh, in the book of Luke, in chapter 1, verse 1, verses 1 through 4, uh, Luke, the associate of the apostle Paul, talks about how uh, he not only uh, researched everything himself, but he also talked to eyewitnesses. And of course, you know, he was an associate of Paul, who Paul said that he saw the risen Jesus. Um, so uh, this is just another account of someone who was really close to the events and uh, knew of eyewitnesses. Um, and if you haven't read Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So yeah, Luke mentions um, that the... the all of these things he's writing about were things handed down to him by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. But he also uh, did some investigating himself. Um, Peter, uh, who wrote uh, his epistles, there's, there's several, examples, several examples in Peter, actually. Second uh, Peter 1.16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Also, in, uh, and I don't have it in my slide here, but in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. And in the book of Acts, there's a couple examples in, in chapter 2 and chapter 10 of Peter telling people that he saw, uh, he, he witnessed the events in the Gospels himself. Uh, the Apostle Paul in his writings, and he talks about this in several places as well, especially in 1 Corinthians, in verses, uh, in, in chapters 9 and 15. But in, in this, uh, what I have here in my slide is Galatians 1, verses 11 through 12. Here Paul says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying that he didn't make this stuff up. He got it from what he was told by Jesus. Okay. The author of Hebrews, which we think is possibly the Apostle Paul or, or Luke, mentioned that this was from eyewitness, uh, eyewitnesses as well. So you can see that uh, these writings are claiming to be eyewitness accounts. And other things that we see are going to kind of be showing this uh, out as well. But I wanted to quickly make a point um, how uh, just how well attested to that these are eyewitness accounts or, or at least come from people uh, who, who were around that time. So 
um, because you know, and and you learn this especially when you when you read uh, uh, Doctor Lycona and, and Habermas's material, but they they oftentimes emphasize that um, uh, even without the Gospels, even if you're talking to somebody who just won't allow the Gospels because they think they're probably just made up by by Christians. Um, it is that they note Habermas and Lycona note that most New Testament critical scholars acknowledge the authenticity of four of Paul's epistles, which are um, I think I have a slide for that. I'm I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and Romans, which are are dated between A.D. 55 and 57. Okay, and what do I mean when I talk about uh, New Testament critical scholars? Well, in the academic study of the Bible, there are two major areas of study um, t- called textual criticism and historical criticism, okay? Textual criticism is also known as lower criticism, if you ever hear these terms. Historical criticism is also known as higher criticism, okay? And and while criticism sounds really negative, um, at, its, at its base, uh, criticism just means... Uh, thinking critically about the sources. Okay, um, it's not necessarily mean criticizing. It just means thinking critically about something. Okay, now textual criticism is the area of study that attempts to determine what the original text said. Textual criticism has a lot to do with the things that we looked at in the last episode when we were looking at the New Testament writings as manuscript, as ancient manuscripts, you know. And they were looking, at, and that's whenever uh, scholars uh, examine all the different existing manuscripts and they try to determine what was the original writing, right? So if there's a, if there's a mistake here or there or there's variances, they try to figure out what was the ori- the original writing. Well, historical criticism is a little bit different. Uh, it, it is the area of study that attempts to determine the source of the text and ask questions such as who, when, where, and why of the authors. Okay, so historical critics a lot of times are asking, okay, uh, sometimes we think there's evidence that when someone was writing an account of what happened in history that they were possibly using other sources in their writings. And that's some of the questions that uh, uh, historical critics ask. Now, just so you know, though, if you ever hear of higher criticism or historical criticism, if you are a Christian, you need to be cognizant of the fact that a lot of higher critics are doing what we call negative criticism. Okay, negative criticism is more destructive from a Christian perspective. Negative criticism, as you see here, I've got defined as uh, negative criticism denies the authenticity of much of the biblical record usually accompanied with anti-supernatural presupposition and takes a guilty until proven innocent approach to the text. Uh, the thing is, there's there's many uh, historical critics uh, who I am defining as negative critics. And this isn't even a secret. It's not, it's not even controversial because this usually happens in religion, in secular universities, in the religion departments, okay? negative higher critics are people who are studying the Bible from a secular perspective and from a atheistic perspective, like uh, from a perspective where they don't believe that, uh, uh, you know, kind of like what we talked about in, uh, in the, the episode on the possibility of miracles. 
using the principle of analogy, they say, well, I don't see his, uh, miracles happening today. So I don't, so from their, what they're saying. So I think whenever I read the Bible and it says miracles are happening, then this was either people lying and making it up or they're explaining natural events with supernatural explanations, even though it was all fully explainable naturally, right? Well, uh, these these scholars look at the Bible and they're trying to figure out what quote unquote really happened because they don't think you know that miracles are possible. So they're trying to figure out what was really going on. You know, did what did they have political reasons for claiming that God was talking to them and and so on and so forth. A positive criticism is a type of higher historical. It's a type of higher criticism, historical criticism, that affirms the authenticity of the biblical record and takes an innocent until proven guilty approach to the text, right? So usually your non-believers will be negative critics. Your positive, uh, excuse me, your your believers will be positive critics. Non-believers take a guilty until proven innocent approach, believing that if it talks about miracles, it's just making it up until they, if they, you know, if there was no other possible explanation, they would say that maybe it happened, but probably they wouldn't. Uh, and then positive critics are usually going to be believers who actually think that the Bible is the Word of God. And they won't say that there's a mistake in the Bible unless there's no other possible explanation, okay? So not all higher, not all historical criticism is bad. But I just want you to be aware of these terms. So, you know, if someone says, well, this Bible, this Bible scholar says that that didn't actually happen, well, you need to, you need to clarify with them well, okay, so what are you talking about? Are you talking about a higher critic? Okay, now does this higher critic uh, assume that miracles are impossible when he or she is doing his study of the Bible? Because I've got arguments, philosophical arguments for you showing that miracles um, aren't necessarily impossible. So, uh, you know, uh, you want to avoid the genetic fallacy and say, well, just because this person doesn't believe in Christianity, uh, everything he or she says is false. That's the genetic fallacy you know, attacking the source instead of attacking the arguments. But it is legitimate to point out that if someone approaches studying the Bible, assuming that miracles are impossible, then that is going to affect his or her conclusions on whether these things actually happened, right? Well, anyways, that's a big side note. But um, having said all this, it is a big deal that even higher critics, even negative historical critics, believe that Paul was the authentic author of the writings traditionally attributed to him, uh, specifically 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Romans, and Galatians. And this is a big deal because these, these sources uh, talk about a lot of the most fundamental things about Christianity that are, that are mentioned in the Gospels. You know, so, uh, and I've got an even longer list uh, from, from, I think it's from Norman Geisler's Christian Apologetics, but uh, here's a list of things that Paul talks about in those uh, writings that even ne- negative critical scholars think are authentic. Uh, Paul talks about how uh, talks about Jesus' virgin birth, uh, Jesus' sinless life, Jesus' death on the cross, that Jesus died to pay for our sins, uh, that Jesus was buried and was resurrected on the third day. And Jesus post and it talks about Paul talks about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to the apostles. Yes, and that and that um, Jesus appeared to other people afterwards, and he appear and he is presently uh, at God's right hand. So, um, even if you aren't, even if someone is so stubborn they won't allow for the gospels, you can say, "Well, look, 
uh, we still have eyewitness testimony of someone who claims to have witnessed Jesus and been taught by Jesus, and uh, and and even higher critical scholars believe that this is at least uh, the person who says to have witnessed these things himself. Okay, so interesting, interesting uh, 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 note there. Okay, moving on to early testimony. Right, we we talked about this earlier, and it's and it's a lot of these are pretty common sense. Uh, so the closer the time between the event that is being talked about in the source and the testimony about it, the more reliable the witness, since there is less time for exaggeration and even legend to creep into the account. And early testimony definitely is something that the Gospels have going for themselves. So um, right here, I am listing to you dates that I like for the Gospels. I have Matthew dated at A.D. 42. Mark dated at A.D. 60, Luke uh, dated at being written at A.D. 62, and John, uh, the later date for John, at A.D. 96. All of these, now, this is going to be a little bit controversial, even among Christians. Um, There's a consensus among uh, Christian scholars, I believe, Christian higher critical scholars, that Mark was written first, and there's various reasons for that. Um, the, however, the, the testimony of the ancient church is that it was written in the order that we see it in the Bible. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it also makes more sense to me that Matthew would have wrote his first since his is so, uh, so Jewish and so relying on the, the, the old Testament. I mean, a lot of the gospels are, but, but Matthew just writes in a way, uh, that he is really appeal, appealing to a Jewish audience way more than like say whenever you see Luke where they're explaining things uh, you know uh, to because you can tell the audience isn't Jewish anyways the the church the apostles were supposed to go to the Jews first then the Gentiles later it makes sense to me that Matthew would be written first but anyways I get all these dates from a book by David Allen Black titled why four gospels the historical origins of the gospels so if you're interested in the datings of the gospels you can check out that book at least there's a ton of material on it Uh, but you can see why he thinks that they happen in this order but notice though that this the you know because jesus life is supposed to be from 81 all the way to 33 right and these gospels are written uh, just within decades uh, Matthew's gospel possibly written uh, within 10 years and Mark Luke and John well Mark and Luke are written in the 60s so that would just be under uh, 30 years from the time uh, and 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 um, even if these are in the 60s if we think Mar- Matthew already existed uh, then you know then it's not that big of a deal but it's so interesting that the gospels, and we'll talk about this in uh, later in this lecture and and in in the next one and or t- two lectures from now we're going to talk about the synoptic problem. It's interesting how the the gospels don't harmonize very well, uh, but even when you have Matthew already existing, uh, Mark and Luke have uh, they talk about the events differently. So that's so that's interesting. And then I've got a later date for John in AD ninety six. But um, these might sound like, well, that's that's terrible. Uh, uh, you know, I would rather have sources talking about Jesus' uh, resurrection the year after. Um, well, 
so first of all, um, we are going. I'm going to show you in in a in a later episode evidence that that the that Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead from from year one, basically. Okay, and this comes from Paul's writings in First Corinthians uh, fifteen. But I, I here I want to make the point that even with uh, ten years, uh, another consideration too is that the the ancient Jews, as most ancient people were, were a very oral um, a society, and they they were um, most people were very good at memorizing important things and passing that on to the next generation. Um, but also, um, ancient uh, scholars have, you know, they have looked at other cases and seen that it looks like <clears throat> when you start thinking about legends creeping in, into historical accounts, this doesn't usually happen within the time of the events of the, of the eyewitnesses of the events. Does that make sense? <clears throat> To discuss this, I have a quote from uh, William Lane Craig from his book, On Guard, Defending Your Faith with Reason and Precision. So it's kind of a long quote, but, um, but you'll see how it it's just really explains this very well. Uh, Craig says, One of the major problems with the legend hypothesis, however, which is almost never addressed by skeptical critics, is that the time gap between Jesus' death and the writing of the Gospels is just too short for this to have happened. This point has been well explained by A.N. Sherwin-White in his book, Roman Society and Roman Law in the New Testament. Professor Sherwin-White is not a theologian. He's a professional Greco-Roman historian of times prior to and contemporaneous with Jesus. According to Sherwin-White, the sources for Roman and Greek history are usually biased and removed one or two generations or even centuries from the events they record. Yet, he says, historians reconstruct with confidence the course of Roman and Greek history. For example, the two earliest biographies of Alexander the Great were written by Arian and Plutarch more than 400 years after Alexander's death, and yet classical historians still consider them to be trustworthy. The fabulous legends about Alexander the Great did not develop until the centuries after these two writers. According to Sherwin-White, the writings of Herodotus enable us to determine the rate at which legend accumulates and the tests show that even two generations is too short a time span to allow legendary tendencies to wipe out the hard core of historical facts. So, um, I find this very interesting. What they're saying is that when you look at ancient history, you see that the sources that are closer to the events seem to be historical but it's not until at least two generations that you start to see legends creep in. And you can see from my list here at A.D. 42, 60, 62, and 96, this is not long enough for that legendary possibility to be there, right? Now, one thing I didn't mention is that, you know, my, uh, just so you know, my list, putting it Matthew at 42, Mark 60, Luke at A.D. 62, John at A.D. 96, this is a conservative list because... I'm I um, if you read Y four Gospels, uh, there's it, it's this is definitely taking more of a, a, a positive historical critical approach where we believe the testimony of the early church because they were there and we weren't, but also there's a lot of internal evidence that supports these as well. So I'm definitely taking a, more of a conservative 
Christian innocent until proven guilty approach. But the negative critics oftentimes place the date of the Gospels after A.D. 70. And the reason why they do this is because the Gospels contain uh, accounts of Jesus prophesying that the, the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, right? And a, a negative critical scholar not believing in prophecy is going to say, well, if, if he got it right, then that means that they wrote this after the events happened because that's the only way to, to you know, have accurate prophecy is to just say that someone prophesied it before it actually, you know, after the events happened, but say it happened before the events actually happened. So negative critical scholars usually put the Gospels after AD 70. But notice, even if you have a date of AD 70 or and, and, and further in the first century for the Gospels, um, noting what A.N. Sherwin White said and what Craig was getting at, um, for two, you know, two generations, uh, that's that's like 80 years, right? Uh, for, for the possibility of myth and legend to occur, we're talking 80 years, but 80 years, but 80 years after uh, Jesus' death is around AD 110. So even the later dates of the Gospels are dates in which we don't think legends would occur. So the er, this early testimony of the New Testament is amazing. But also notice what I mentioned about how ancient historians, like they, they find no issue with reconstructing ancient history, even using writings from authors in which the authors wrote hundreds of years after the events occurred. Yet we have higher critical scholars thinking that Jesus was possibly a mythical figure or Jesus, you know, none of these things actually happen. When, when you look at it, the, the, the time between the events and the writings of the New Testament is much shorter uh, than what they're used to working with. So, uh, you know, here's here's a quote from A.N. Sherwin-White writing in that book that I mentioned, Roman Society and Roman Law in the New Testament. He says, So it is astonishing that while Greco-Roman historians have been growing confidence, the 20th century study of the gospel narrative starting from no less promising material have taken so gloomy a term in the development of form criticism that the historical Christ is unknowable and the history of his mission cannot be written. This seems very curious. Well, you know, he again, he wasn't a theologian. He was a Greco-Roman scholar, and he just thought it was, it was interesting. And it just seemed to be special pleading that some of the, you know, most of ancient Roman scholars are just piecing together history from these uh, accounts that are written centuries after and not that many I would, you know, not that many independent sources, but when we start talking about Jesus, all of a sudden the real Jesus is unknowable and all those things, even though the New Testament uh, manuscripts and the New Testament authors seem to be a lot more reliable than all the other things that they were easily piecing together. Um, but, you know, just to talk about more about the reliability of the New Testament writers, uh, you know, going along with this eyewitness uh, testimony concept. If you aren't familiar with this, um, there's a well-known uh, book written by uh, Colin J. Uh, Hamer called The Book of Acts in the Setting of Hellenistic History. So uh, Hamer's a Roman historian, and um, this, this, in, his, in this book, looking at the Book of Acts, he basically looks at um, 
you know, whether or not the book of Acts is showing uh, accurate history or not. And uh, it's a great book. It shows so many things um, and show many, so many ways in which, uh, you know, Hamer basically concludes that Luke is one of the best ancient historians of all time. Um, now, he in that book, he gives uh, a lot of evidence uh, to show that he thinks that uh, Acts was written before A.D. 62. So, you know, this is this is giving us more reason to think that, for one, Acts was written closer to the events, but also from eyewitness testimony, or at least the time of the eyewitnesses would have still been alive. So uh, Hamer mentions uh, that the book of Acts makes no mention of the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70. It makes no reference to the Jewish war, which happened in AD 66. It gives no hint of Nero's persecutions in AD 65. It ends with the apostle Paul still alive. He died in 65. Ends with the apostle James still alive. He died in AD 62. And, you know, the book of Acts is writing about the early church. And I think I got this from uh, Norman Geisler. But he said, you know, to, to, write, uh, to write a book about the early church and omit any one of these facts would, li- would be like writing a bibliography uh, about the life of, um, Rob, uh, of JFK, but not mentioning that he was assassinated. <laughs> All of these are so important. The fall of Jerusalem because it was prophesied by Jesus. The Jewish war, Nero's persecutions of Christians, the Apostle Paul dying, James dying. All of those are so important to the early church that to omit those from Acts would, would just be unthinkable. So these are reasons why Hamer thinks that the, the book of Acts was written before AD 62. So, so it's just giving us um, more evidence that was written at the time of the eyewitnesses of the accounts and also uh, written uh, shortly, uh, you know, relatively shortly after the events themselves. But yeah, like I said, uh, Hamer also confirms that Luke was an accurate historian. Uh, You know, there's so many little details in the book of Acts that don't need to be there. You know, that he talks about what, what was on coins, talks about routes that Paul and Luke took on their journeys. So many small details that actually don't need to be there if you think about it. When, when, when uh, Luke is trying to report the, the early history of the church, a lot of these small details don't need to be in there, but he, he includes them. And Hamer points out that there's minute geographical details known to the readers. There's specialized details known only to special groups. There's specifics of routes, places, and officials not widely known. There's a correlation of dates and acts with general history. There's details appropriate to that period, but not others. There's events that reflect a sense of immediacy. There's idioms and culture that bespeak a firsthand awareness. And there's a verification of numeral details of times, people, and events of that period best known by contemporaries. So Hamer just points out that there's so many different things in the book of Acts that seem to point to it actually been written by someone at that time period. Because people from later times wouldn't have known some of those details and they wouldn't have even spoken the way that he spoke in, in writing that. Uh, so I, I highly encourage you to, to look at this book, uh, the book of Acts in this setting of Hellenistic history. Um, it just shows, it just goes to show how uh, we think Luke is, is so reliable. <clears throat> yeah, and, and going along with this, A.N. Sherwin White says, For Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. 
Any attempt to reject its basic historicity, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. So he's just pointing out that most Roman historians, it's widely known that Acts is very historically accurate. Um, so yeah, you know, just some more evidence for it being uh, close to the accounts and from eyewitnesses. So moving on, uh, and these are some of the, these last two points, enemy attestation and embarrassing omissions are some of my favorite. Because, you know, early accounts, multiple independent sources and eyewitness testimony, pretty common sense, right? Of course we want those. But it's so interesting to me, these are maybe things that you wouldn't think about without being a historian and being taught about this, but also maybe things that you didn't even realize that, you know, you're reading about it and you didn't even realize it's a thing, but it makes so much sense that these, this is even more evidence that the, the New Testament uh, writings, just considered as historical documents, are historical. So, uh, like I said, enemy attestation is the next one we're going to cover. And, and what we say is, if testimony affirming an event or saying is given by a source who does not sympathize with the person, message, or cause that profits from the account, we have an indication of authenticity. So yeah, this point is just saying that if, if someone who is your enemy admits that, that, that what you are saying is true, then it's probably true, right? Because your enemies don't like you and they don't like your cause, so oftentimes they're going to claim that you're a liar. But if they did admit that what you're saying is true in certain areas, then that seems to really confirm that it really is true because why would they make that up if they don't like you? And uh, we're going to talk about extra biblical sources talking about the events that are affirmed in the Bible, okay? Uh, because, uh, I, you know, what we're doing right now is covering a lot of base material that I need to cover before I show you arguments, specific arguments for Jesus' resurrection. But there's so much evidence and so many things to consider that that's why I'm, I'm methodically breaking all these down. The, the reliability of the writings, the reliability of the writers, um, Jesus' self-understanding, discrepancies in the Gospels and all those things. Okay, so Later on, when we talk about Jesus' resurrection, I'm going to talk about extra-biblical sources that mention Jesus. A lot of people don't even realize that Jesus is attested to by historians, ancient historians, outside of the Bible. Uh, which really, you know, in my mind, uh, and I think it's an easy conclusion, it just blows away all these uh, theories that Jesus was just made up. But anyways, um, Jewish historian Josephus uh, from AD 37 to 100 mentions Jesus. The Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus from A.D. 55 uh, till around A.D. 117 mentions Jesus. The Greek satirist Lucian from the 2nd century. Roman historian Suetonius from around A.D. 120. Roman magistrate Pliny the Younger around A.D. 112. And centuries later, the Jewish Talmud mentions things as well. Uh, but what's interesting is that when you read all these sources, they, they confirm that Christians believed. First, they confirm that Jesus was a person. Second, they confirm that Jesus, uh, that Jesus followers, that, that Christians around that time believed that Jesus rose from the dead, that believed he was divine or something like that. We'll be looking at these a lot later, like I said. But, but you know, these, this, it's enemy attestation because non-Christian Jews 
And Romans in this first few centuries, right? The Romans uh, in the first couple centuries of the church were persecuting Christians. The Jew, the non-Christian uh, Jews didn't believe that Jesus was divine. So they don't have anything to gain from talking about Jesus existing as a person and that his followers believing that he was God, okay? So so you so this this is more evidence that what the people what the authors of the New Testament are saying is true because they even their enemies admitted that some of what they said was true is true, okay? And then in embarrassing admissions. And and, and and yeah, with this enemy attestation, you know, I, there's only so much I can put into each one of these lectures. I'll try to I'll try to reemphasize this later on when we look at those uh, extra biblical writings. Uh, embarrassing admissions. This is one of my favorite, right? If I'm going to create, uh, if I just want to make up a religion and I'm going to be one of the, you know, one of the people in charge when the religion starts and I'm going to try to make up a bunch of stories that happen that show that I should be in charge. I'm probably not going to make a bunch of embarrassing admissions in my stories, right? I'm probably not going to make myself look bad in some light because I want people to follow me. Well, um, oh, well, yeah, and let me read my slide here. Embarrassing admissions, an indicator that an event or saying is authentic, occurs when the source would not be expected to create the story because it embarrasses his cause and weakened its position in arguments with opponents. Okay, the New Testament is rife with embarrassing admissions, okay, if, and for various reasons. The first one is the Gospels don't easily harmonize. I've got a whole lecture, uh, I think it's two lectures from now, we'll talk about the synoptic problem. Now, the synoptic problem actually isn't a specific problem about whether the, the Gospels harmonize or not. The synoptic problem actually is something that higher critical scholars look at when they're trying to determine whether some of the, um, you know, for example, some higher critical scholars believe that Mark was written first because Mark, because there's uh, passages in in Luke and Matthew that are found in Mark, right? So they think that Mark probably existed before the others. That That's the synoptic problem, trying to figure out if there was some sources that the authors used and the other things like that. But out of the study of the synoptic problem, there has been a lot of uh, emphasis on how the Gospels harmonize or not. And what we found is that they don't easily harmonize in some cases. Some stories... It looks like the when you look at the parallel, you know, say you look at the story of an account of Mary showing up to the tomb in Matthew. It might be different in Luke. It might be different in Mark. And sometimes people think that the different accounts uh, contradict each other. <clears throat> now, we're going to look at that stuff a lot more two lectures from now. But just for now, just know that's actually evidence for the authenticity of the New Testament, right? Because like our first point says, if you only have one independent source, then it's easily made up by that one source, right? I think this is a, a point that James Warner Wallace makes. If, you, if you're familiar with uh, uh, James Warner Wallace, he's a, he's a retired cold case detective. He says that whenever he used to get people together when he was trying to um, uh, investigate a murder, if they all had the same story word for word, he knew they'd all made it up. It wasn't, you know, it's it's only whenever everybody had told the same story, but slightly from a different perspective that he knew they were just telling it how they saw it. <clears throat> well, the Gospels don't easily harmonize. And this tells us that, yeah, they, there are some problems that look like they're contradicting each other. But I'll, I'll show you evidence why they're not. 
but it looks like they're contradicting each other on the surface, but this is actually evidence that it was written into by independent sources from different perspectives. Okay. But that's, that's uh, embarrassing to a certain extent. Um, the gospels include material that puts Jesus in a bad light. I'll show you, I'll show you examples of these here in the next couple slides. The new Testament books include self-incriminating details about the apostles in the early church. Uh, Jesus is portrayed saying things that wouldn't have been popular or easily understood, and the apostles distinguish their words from Jesus' words. So <clears throat> let me show you examples of these. I got ahead of myself talking about the synoptic problem, but yes, the Gospels don't easily harmonize. So on one side, this looks embarrassing because some of the stories seem to contradict each other. But like I said, on another end, this is actually evidence that the, it comes from multiple independent sources. But we'll talk about that more later. The Gospels include material that puts Jesus in a bad light. So I have several passages here. Uh, uh, well, I don't have the passages themselves listed, but I, I've got several points that I'd like to make uh, with the Bible passage list, uh, listed. So um, I'll just go ahead and at least read the book and the chapter. So, um, yeah, the, the Gospels include material that puts Jesus in a bad light. And these are things that we wouldn't, we, we assume wouldn't be there if the apostles or the the uh, New Testament authors were just making all this stuff out, right? Um, it was said in John chapter 7 that uh, Jesus' half-brothers did not believe he was the Messiah. In Mark chapter 3, you see that uh, Jesus' family thought he was insane. <laughs> uh, many of Jesus' followers deserted him. You see that in John chapter 6. Many of the Jews of his day, of Jesus' day, thought that he was a deceiver uh, and a madman. You see that in John chapter 7. You know, if you were making up a religion and it was based in, a, in someone, would you say these things? That his family thought he was crazy, that his followers deserted him? I doubt you would. So these are indicators that they were just telling, what, telling us what happened, right? Uh, the New Testament books include self-incriminating details about the apostles in the church. Let's say that, that Jesus never existed or, or that he didn't really rise from the dead, but um, he was killed and, and his apostles want to start a new religion for some reason because they want power and money. Well, uh, in their Gospels, they make all these embarrassing admissions that I wouldn't want people to know. You know, and and don't really make sense unless you just uh, unless you just conclude that they were just telling the truth of what happened. In Mark chapter fourteen, you see that the disciples fell asleep twice when they were supposed to be uh, praying. In Mark fourteen, also you see that Peter betrayed Christ three times. <laughs> um, in Matthew twenty six, you see the disciples fled for fear of their lives um, after Jesus. I think that was after Jesus was taken captive. Uh, or after he was, yeah. Uh, in Matthew 28, most of the disciples initially failed to believe even after they heard that Jesus had risen from the dead. And in Mark 9 and Luke 18, you see the disciples were dim-witted. <laughs> um, so there's so many admissions that we don't think they would have just included in there unless they were just reporting what happened. Um, Jesus is portrayed saying things that wouldn't have been popular or easily understood. So in John 6, Jesus commands his followers to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And it was admitted that a lot of his followers left because he said that. Matthew 8 shows Jesus commanding uh, his followers to not honor deceased relatives uh, by attending their funerals. In Luke 14, Jesus required his followers to hate their parents in order to prove their love to him. 
Um, and you know, that's a difficult passage to deal with, but, uh, you know, you, when you study it, you can show it. He didn't mean that he, everyone had to literally hate their parents. He was just saying that if your parents were against him, then you, you know, you quote unquote need to hate them. Um, Matthew five, his, uh, Jesus teaching that even haters are guilty of murder in their heart. He was teaching that it doesn't matter if you haven't physically murdered someone. If you've hated someone, you've murdered them in your heart. So these are hard sayings, right? And Matthew 5, it shows him command uh, people to turn the other cheek and to pray for those who uh, for those who are his, their enemies. So a lot of hard sayings uh, that that his first century readers would and, and listeners would not have wanted to hear. Uh, the apostles distinguished their words from Jesus' words. This is really interesting as well. Because, um, you know, they're, they're making distinctions. Uh, and, and this is in several places. One good example is uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 12. Here Paul says, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Paul is careful to tell them what is coming directly from God and from Jesus and what is not coming from Jesus and is his opinion. So this is really interesting as well. So, so even the New Testament authors are distinguishing what comes from God and what doesn't. And just all of these are things that we wouldn't assume would be there if they are just making all this stuff up, right? Now, apart from the earmarks of historicity, I wanted to mention a handful of things that also seem to be uh, additional uh, considerations that show that uh, the New Testament authors are reliable. Okay, and here's my list of things I wanted to I wanted to look at. They did not deny their testimony under threat of death. They challenged readers to check out the facts. They warned against false teachers, and they warned against inauthentic writings. We'll look at all this, and then we'll be done. Um, so yeah, even in the books themselves, it shows, and this is such an interesting contrast before Jesus resurrection in the gospels and in acts, the, 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 um, apostles and Jesus followers are really betrayed as cowardly, uh, not all that smart. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And, um, and, and yeah, they, they weren't good at being apostles and being disciples of Jesus. After his resurrection, something happens. And, you know, and obviously we would say it's because they literally saw Jesus rise from the dead. Uh, this is what makes it so bold for them. They know that if now they know that if they do, uh, they have faith in Jesus, they're going to live forever with him. But anyways, uh, even in the, even in these accounts themselves, you see that under threat of death, uh, they, the apostles and and some of Jesus' followers, did not deny what they were saying was true, and we'll talk about this later when we look at uh, arguments for Jesus' resurrection. It's very powerful, uh, and, and I just want to say it here. You know, a lot of people might say, "Well, a lot of religious people die for their beliefs." That doesn't make their beliefs true. You know, what's the difference between a, a suicide bomber? And one of the apostles. Well, the difference is a suicide bomber was told that these things are true by somebody else who, who wasn't there. The difference with the, with the uh, apostles is that they are dying for something that they claimed to they saw with their own eyes. Uh, 
if the apostles were making all this up and, and you were threatening their life or you were literally killing them, they would, you know, if they were just making it up, they would say, okay, I made it all up. It's not true. But history not only is, is lacking of any account that said that the apostles changed their story, but on the contrary, history shows us that the apostles went to their deaths. A lot of them did. Um, there's books written on this as well. Um, but so Stephen is someone we think was martyred for, for, uh, talking about this. Peter and Paul, uh, were both threatened with their lives and also eventually martyred and they never changed their story. Uh, so very powerful evidence in my mind that they were telling what they just thought to be true. Um, in the, in the New Testament writings, the New Testament writings themselves challenged the readers uh, you know, the first century readers to go and, and, and check this out for themselves. One example is Acts 2, verse 22. It says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. You know, he's including in this speech that you yourselves know. Jesus was among you. You know, uh, we think, like I said, we think Acts was written in the 60s. This would only have been 20, 30 years after Jesus died. So all the people that, are, that saw that, and, and, and you know, the, in 1 Corinthians, we see that uh, Paul says that Jesus appeared to like 300, 500 people afterwards, a ton of people. So all these people would still have been alive in the 60s, and the, and the New Testament authors, uh, of course, this is an account of a story that happened previously to that. But they're telling everyone, look, go ask someone. They're still alive. Go check these out for yourself. In 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Paul says, After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. He's writing this in the 50s. So they're telling, look, if you if you want to check this out, go talk to some of these people. So, uh, you know, they're not, they're not just making this up and hoping that no one uh, knows about it. They're telling, look, go check it out for yourself. Also, the New Testament writings warn against false teachers. So this just this just goes to show that the early church wasn't a bunch of gullible people just just uh, accumulating a bunch of writings that talk about miracles. Uh, they were guided. It was founded and guided by the apostles. In Galatians one, verses six through eight, Paul says, "I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel." which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. So there, this is evidence that they had a, a, a certain doctrine that they were teaching in the first century within decades, within decades after Jesus died, and they were teaching people that this is the correct way to see it, and if someone else is just making things up, don't believe him or her. Similarly, uh, they warned against inauthentic writings. So it wasn't just inauthentic teachings. They're also warning against inauthentic writings. And uh, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2, it says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as is from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Uh, this is Paul talking about Jesus coming back. Some people, I guess, were writing letters saying that uh, Jesus has already come back or something like that. Regardless, this is Paul warning the early Christians to only 
uh, use and, and read letters that are authentic from him. Don't just believe everything you read. It needs to be checked out and uh, vetted by an apostle or someone close to an apostle. So they were aware of not only false teachings, but also false writings. So the early church wasn't a bunch of gullible people that just wanted to believe anything uh, that anybody said that it included miracles. Okay, so just more evidence that the, the New Testament authors were reliable. Okay, and I think a lot of, you know, a lot of it's common sense, the earmarks of historicity, but also some of these other things, these additional things, I think, really come together to make a powerful case for the reliability of the authors. So I think we've covered all this, but just to remind you of the questions for reflection, why do you think some scholars are okay with accepting other ancient writings historical, but they think the Gospels contain legends and myths? And our last question for reflection was, a 30-year gap between the events and writing about the events sounds like a lot to us today. Is there a consideration regarding first century Jewish culture that helps us understand why this gap isn't alarming? So that's all I was going to cover today. I wanted to leave you with another quote from Charles Coulson. He says, The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is more powerful than anything else we believe. By his resurrection, Jesus proved he is who he says he is. Be confident in this truth. Stand on the holy word of God. Don't sell the world a false bill of goods. Preach the word. Defend the faith. Live the faith. So, um, as always, I wanted to uh, give a shout out to Southern Evangelical Seminary. If you're new to this series, I just wanted you to know that um, I was educated at Southern Evangelical Seminary. I have a PhD in philosophy of religion from there. Also a Master of uh, master in Arts of uh, Christian Apologetics. So I love SES. It's a great seminary, great school. And if you want to dive deeper into these topics, um, I highly recommend that you check out. They have, uh, uh, check out SES. They have, uh, even if it's just, even if you just want uh, to check out, they have certificates. Uh, they But they have anything, any, anything as low as, uh, a bachelor of arts all the way up to a phd so it's a great school and if you are looking more if you want to look more into apologetics i highly recommend it also um this material comes from a course that i uh, made and taught at kingdom preparatory academy uh, which is a classical christian school here in lubbock texas where i live uh, my kids go to it and i love it and i highly recommend that if you are looking for a classical uh, christian uh, alternative to education in the Lubbock area that you look at their website. It's kingdomprep.org, and um, or, or or stop by and 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 uh, and give them a visit. It's a great school. They teach your kids not what to think but how to think, and it's all uh, done from a biblical worldview and biblical perspective. Um, so I, I highly recommend that. But yes, um, I'm glad that you're. I'm glad to be back. I'm, I'm glad that uh, you made it this far with me. And in our next lecture, we're going to talk about Jesus' self-understanding and look at claims that he made in the Bible uh, to divinity. So I hope to see you there, and I hope you have a good one.